0: In episode 53 of Mosin at Large, I have a new toy, a new audio interface. I'll tell you about it this week. More on Braille displays. And if you had to choose between a computer and a smartphone, which would you pick? Plus, we'll be asking for your choice of weather apps.
1: Mosin at Large Podcast.
0: You're very welcome to contribute to the podcast, and there are two ways to do it. You can drop me an email to Jonathan. That's J O N A T H A N at mushroomfm.com. You can write something in that email or you can attach an audio recording using anything that records and you can attach to an email. You can also call the listener line. That number is in the United States. It's 864-60-MOSIN, 864-606-6736 and record a message that could be included in the podcast. Concise contributions always help. We can't include everything because of the volume of contributions we receive. And please note that if we do use your content, we reserve the right to edit it for clarity and brevity. You can follow Mosin at Large, all one word, on Twitter to join the conversation with other listeners, to get sneak peeks about what's coming up on the podcast, and I regularly tweet links that I think will be of interest to Mosin at Large listeners. To keep up to date with Mosin at Large and radio-related activities I'm doing, you can subscribe to our media email list. It's announcements only, and the traffic is very light. To do that, send a blank email to media-subscribe at mosin.org. That's media-subscribe at mosin.org. The podcast version of this show contains extracts from the full version, which is heard live on Mushroom FM at mushroomfm.com and anywhere that you listen to radio stations at 2 p.m. U.S. Eastern Time on a Saturday afternoon. For the full and at Large experience, I encourage you to be part of that community. And finally, before we get into the episode this week, a reminder that this podcast is long. And to help you navigate past the bits that you aren't interested in to the bits that you are, It's segmented by chapters. If you have a podcast app capable of supporting chapters, and many on iOS and Android do this, you can skip between segments of the show. It's a pleasure to be back with you. Thank you so much for listening once again. Now, let's first of all deal with the elephant in the room. That is a very strange expression, isn't it? I don't know where that comes from. I wonder if I can ask the drinker where it comes from. Well, maybe I will at some point. Anyway, right now, the elephant in the room is all this material I've prepared for you on the podcast hosting change and all the research I did and my findings. And of course, now we also have an interview with Matt Baster from Pinecast, who is the podcast host that I have chosen. And you'll be thinking he never plays it flaky, flaky, flake. But the thing is, there are just so many great contributions coming through. So here is what I am going to do on this episode of the show today, which goes out on Mushroom FM as well as in the podcast feed. We're going to have a regular chat about various things that we previewed in the show announcement that went to the media list and everywhere else. And then we're going to have a separate podcast-only episode ...released midweek in the week to come, which covers all these podcasting questions. My review of podcast hosts and the interview with Matt Baster from Pinecast. So that will be exclusive on the podcast feed. If you listen to Mosin at Large on Mushroom FM and you are not subscribed to the podcast, then please do feel free to go ahead and do that. And then you'll be able to hear this special episode on podcasting. And because it is quite a niche subject... I reckon that's probably the way to handle this. So look forward to the podcast special coming up sometime midweek. That will be episode 54 of Mosin at Large in the podcast feed. Now, I also said in passing in the announcement for the show, which went to the Mosin at Large media list and the blog for Mushroom FM and everywhere else that it goes, that if all things are going well. We will be doing the first show using my new audio interface. Well, I don't know whether all things are going to go well, but we are doing the first Mosin-at-Large on the new audio interface, and I didn't mention what it was because I wasn't sure if I was going to keep it or not. So let me tell you what we're using. This is a Focusrite 8i6. Focusrite is about focus, like you'd expect, and then R-I-T-E, all one word, And the reason why I was a little bit dubious about whether I would keep it or not will become evident when I talk you through my initial findings on this audio interface. I knew it could be a showstopper kind of a problem, but I also knew that this interface has a really good reputation with podcasters and others. Apparently, Focusrite is now the top brand of audio interface being sold in the world. They're based in the UK, and it's red, Heidi tells me. It's red like my Alan and Heath... Z22FX, so apparently the new Focusrite 8i6 sitting next to the Allen & Heath Z22FX looks really cool, like it was just sort of meant to be serendipitous, (laughs) that's what it is. So I got this Focusrite 8i6, partly because audio interfaces get upgraded all the time and technology changes, and because with my hearing impairment, it is sometimes hard for me to hear little bits of clipping. And so if I can get the best possible interface I can, uh, make sure that I can keep my levels under control, then that is good. But also it just uh, gives me a little bit more flexibility in a number of respects. First, I have a couple of extra inputs. And what that's allowing me to do is I have a cable already going from one of the main buses of the mixer to the focus Right. And that allows me to just record things from the mixer and that's fine. But there's a cool little trick that I learned about with insert jacks, which you often find in mixers and, and some other products like that, where if you don't plug all the way into those insert jacks, what you actually have is an isolated prefade feed from whatever insert jack you're plugging into. And that allows me to do some really cool things like actually record things while things are going to air on Mushroom FM. It just gives me incredible flexibility. So the 8i6 gives me a couple of extra analog inputs compared to the complete Audio 6 that I have been using, which is a good audio interface as well. There's also another really nice feature of the Focusrite 8i6, and a number of audio interfaces have this now, including some of the Motu products. And it's called loopback. And if you don't have a mixer and you want to record either Skype or Zoom interviews, direct yourself or maybe demonstrations of technology, if you're wanting to record something where you are um, letting people hear your computer audio, there's a couple of inputs called loopback. And by default, it will simply record off outputs one and two of the focus right. So what this means in practice is, let's say you're recording a Skype interview. You can record using Reaper, say, yourself on one track using your microphone. And in the other track, you can select the loopback either in stereo or just one of the loopback channels as your second input. And that will record whatever is coming through to your output one and two. So it could be Skype, it could be Zoom, it could be your screen reader or whatever. So that is a very cool trick it lowers the barrier to entry a lot for many podcasters. The need for a mixer just for podcasting really, I would say, is pretty much non-existent in most cases now. And with this Focus right 8i6, you can plug microphones into this. They have beautiful preamps. They have a button called Air, which is a virtual button, and I'll come back to that in a minute, which apparently gives it a sort of a Um, I don't know, in a a more expansive sound when you're using microphones in there. It supports 48-volt phantom power. So if you want to use a condenser microphone with this, you can. So it's a nice machine. It gets really very good reviews. And I decided to purchase it. Now, because of COVID, there was a bit of a delay in me getting this. Between me placing the order and it arriving, it became very clear to me through various places I was frequenting that the control panel for the Focusrite 8i6 is just a complete piece of soup. It is 100% inaccessible, and no one is exaggerating when they tell you this. It is just awful. Luckily for me, I have a really good relationship with an audio store that sells a lot of this gear, and I'm sure you can appreciate why. They like me there. Funny that. (laughs) And I said to them, I just learned that this is a potential accessibility debacle. So just to let you know, I might need to send this back. And they said, that's totally fine. As long as it's in good condition, let us know. We know you'll buy something else. So I got this focus right. 8i6 and Heidi and I were doing some geeking out which we love to do yesterday and we got this out and we plugged it in I'd read the manual in advance the first thing I noticed was how incredibly user friendly the installation experience was when you connect the Focusrite Scarlett to the computer for the first time it pops up as a drive not an audio interface but a drive And so you can navigate to that drive or just choose to respond to the notification and use Windows Explorer to find this drive. And right there on the drive, it's a file that says something like click here to begin or something click here to get started. I think it's really, really obvious. I mean, you couldn't miss it. And when you do that, it takes you to a web page, which will open in your default browser. It detects your operating system and it will talk you through Installing the necessary drivers. The system then restarts. You can create an account with Focusrite, which they encourage you to do because they have some freebies they give you and access to various things. And then eventually, when you've finished that process, which is 100% accessible because it's browser based, you reboot the machine. It stops being a drive and is back to being a full audio interface again. It's genius and 100% accessible and very friendly. The first thing that you would want to do if you are using this in Windows is there's a little option in Notification Center. Right now, for me, it's popping up at the top of the Windows Notification Center. When you right-click on that, it says something like focus right uh, 8i6, and it tells you the current sampling rate and buffer size that it's using. When you right-click, one of the options in the right-click menu is to expose the different inputs and outputs to Windows. And when you do this, it's just a standard, thank goodness, a standard dialogue with a bunch of checkboxes. When you do this, you can go into Windows Control Panel and all your different inputs and outputs can be seen by Windows devices that don't use ASIO so for example for station playlist which i use that does not support aco that uses the standard wdm drivers this is a really big deal so that was accessible and seamless but when you get to configuring using the focus right control panel that application is totally inaccessible and i needed to read the manual and work with heidi to get it configured the way i wanted it in particular i needed to make sure That we went into the control panel and configured it for door mode or DAW mode, digital audio workstation mode, because that stopped the outputs from picking up the inputs in my mixer, which was obviously giving a very horrible feedback type scenario because it was picking up what was coming out the mixer and rebroadcasting itself. Very nasty. So that was easily fixed if you've got a working pair of eyeballs by going in and turning on the DAW mode. You can also configure What loopback is picking up that feature that I mentioned earlier, and you have to turn on the air button if you want to use that, which is available in inputs one and two by using a virtual button in the focus right control panel, which, of course, is completely inaccessible. You can, of course, adjust levels from the Windows control panel or if you're using an ACO product like Reaper, that will work as well. For the front inputs, inputs one and two, where you can also plug microphones, you have to specify whether the input is a mic level input, a line level input, or an instrument input. And again, you cannot do that accessibly yourself. So if you're going to be plugging a range of devices into these inputs, which I am not, you probably don't want this. My understanding is that Focusrite are pretty responsive. They'll remote in for you and configure things the way that you want. But they apparently have said, well, it would take an awful lot of work to redo the user interface. It just goes to show that when it comes to accessibility, you really should design everything from the ground up with accessibility in mind, but we know that many people don't do that. There is also an iOS app for the Focusrite. And I do have that. And in the time that I had with Heidi yesterday, we could not get the iOS app to see the Focusrite device, even though both were using the same Wi-Fi network. So I'm not sure there may be some sort of firewall issue that I need to deal with there. And I will research that further and find out how accessible the Focusrite iOS app is. Obviously, if, if that's better than the Windows thing and we can get some things done, then that could be a viable solution. But since I have it all configured the way I want, I think it is going to be okay and if there is some reason for me to change something, I can, I guess, at a pinch, call Ira. It is very snappy under Reaper. I've got it all set up in Reaper and uh, editing with it. The latency, absolutely stunning. Really good. So I think now that it is configured, I will be keeping it. I really like the sound of it and it seems to be performing well, knocking on the wood. So those are my initial impressions of the Focusrite 8i6.
2: Jonathan Rosen.
0: Hi Jonathan
3: and everyone listening to Mosen at Large. This is Brian Hartran speaking. You've been discussing a subject recently that I'm particularly passionate about and that is Braille. I use Braille with a capital B and with reverse panning enabled for all kinds of things. My general work, delivering presentations, proofreading and preparing documents, my radio shows, all of which would be far more difficult if I didn't have Braille. I'm sure many of you are the same. This was brought home to me recently when I had to send my main new Braille display back for repair. More about that later. Fortunately, I had the old unit that I could rely upon. I was particularly pleased, Jonathan, with your comments to the effect that, as blind people, we could be proud of specialist devices and services, and how the functionality has evolved over time to be embraced by sighted people. I enjoy using all kinds of technology, but I will say that I am a big fan of specialist devices, such as the Victor Reader Stream and similar products, principally because I'm not going to be interrupted by any notifications, any alerts and anything of that nature. I know that if I switch on, for example, the Braille Sense Polaris, I can open up a presentation that I want to read or some notes that I've made, and I'm not going to be interrupted by anything. I can just synchronise my notes from Google Drive. They're right there for me, And that is all I have access to. I'm not going to be interrupted by anything untoward that I don't want to read. Now, I accept that I can turn those notifications off on a mainstream device, but with a specialist unit, it just works. I don't have to go through a lot of extra steps to get what I want. The same is true for the Victor Reader Stream, of course. I can listen to a book with the knowledge that nothing else is going to be heard. Because we're in the business of training people how to use technology, and for personal reasons, we have a number of Braille devices here. To let you know what we have access to at the moment, and to provide you with some context, I have a Focus 45th generation display. The new L Braille, a Braille Sense Polaris, and a Hims Q Braille. So, based on all of that, I'll make some observations on the focus displays. I've had consistent problems with ghost dots appearing and damaged Braille cells over the years. We've gone through quite a number of focus units where these things have occurred. We recently purchased a new focus display and within a few weeks, it happened again, where two cells were defective. I wasn't particularly pleased about that. The UK distributor sent away to Holland for two new cells because they were confirmed as being defective, and it took about five days for us to get the unit back. But this does seem to be a problem. And while you can live with it, Braille readers will know that it can really make the difference, not just in terms of understanding, but also fluency of reading too. Let's talk now about the L Braille and specialist devices. Yes, the L Braille is very popular, particularly now that the new release has emerged. And undoubtedly, it is much faster and gives a far better performance. But there are several things to remember. While you do have all the power and flexibility of Windows with a Braille entry keyboard, it still has a number of problems. First, the L Braille is only as good as JAWS is. If JAWS malfunctions or crashes, you are to some extent stuck. Unfortunately, this happens perhaps more than you would wish. Remember that the braille entry keyboard will not function if JAWS has stopped working. It is completely reliant on JAWS. Yes, you do have the emergency menu, which shuts the unit down, but If you're in the middle of writing something and you haven't saved it, that isn't going to help you very much unless you have a QWERTY keyboard available where you can start Narrator. And having a QWERTY keyboard, to some extent, defeats the object of having a portable device like this with Braille access. Jonathan was absolutely right when he said that, as blind people, we have needs which are unique, and that certainly applies to basic note-taking, a pen and paper substitute. It isn't just the ability to write text, but it is finding what you want afterwards, locating text strings, which improve your productivity. This is where the specialist devices, such as the Braille Sense Polaris from HIMS, have this one well and truly licked. Apart from the L notes application, and even that has some shortcomings in this area, the L Braille has no specialist applications of this kind. And What that means is that in order to find text, you have to execute keyboard commands which are not especially memorable in an application such as Microsoft Word, type in what you need, press enter, press escape, and if you want speech, read the current line to determine if it is the correct instance of what you had in mind. There are lots of other Things too. Lots of other examples I could give where the manufacturers of these specialist devices that are not reliant on Windows have thought about the specific needs of blind people. The L Braille is a great product, but it is centered around using Windows and doesn't include some of these more specialist tools. And finally, in respect of the L Braille, we come to the learning of the device. Yes, of course, it's possible to learn how to control the L with a Braille input keyboard so as to navigate Windows, but it is initially quite hard work and doesn't always come naturally to people. I had to write a tool for this so that some of our customers could at least use the device without a QWERTY keyboard while they got used to the more efficient shortcuts. Navigating windows using a braille keyboard is a very clever concept, and I don't want to take that away from Vispero, but there has to be a way to make the learning easier. Again, products such as the Polaris do not have this problem because they have straightforward menus, logical shortcut keys and so on. You could probably start using a Polaris in less than five minutes and get something useful out of it without even reading the instruction manual. I couldn't say the same about the L Braille. This leads me finally onto the Q Braille, which is a nice transition from what I've just been discussing. The beauty of the cube rail is that it does have additional keys which simulate Windows functions the control key, the Windows key, Alt, Shift, function keys, and what you might call the six pack including home and end, etc. This immediately takes away that learning curve that I've been talking about. So you can very easily keep your hands on the display, use the Perkins-style keyboard for text entry, and perform your Windows functions without having to learn anything new. When I heard about that concept, I was very impressed. And now that I've got the cube Braille. I can speak of it only in glowing terms. I only have good things to say about it. There are three characteristics of him's products which stand out. First, build quality. When you look at or feel one of their products, it says to you quality right there. That includes the quality of the braille cells, the feel of the unit overall, Even the ease with which you can put the device into its case. And also the fact that you get a hard copy Braille booklet as a getting started guide. That's a bonus too. It's obvious that a lot of thought has gone into the preparation of the products. All these things are important when you're bringing a product to market. Second, the fact that the Braille displays are quiet when they scroll or pan. Now, I'm reading the script that I've written for this particular podcast segment on the Polaris, and hopefully you can't hear the display panning. The focus does make quite a noise when moving from one line to the next. You can live with it, certainly, but there are a lot of situations where I need it to be absolutely as quiet as possible. Lastly, to repeat... While you can use Android apps if you want to on the Polaris, Hims have developed applications and an interface which suits both the advanced and less experienced users. As has been recently demonstrated with their work with a company to provide a specialist Twitter client for the Polaris, that work and collaboration is still very much in evidence. Now, to balance things a little, their technical support and product repair does seem to be quite an issue. But apart from that, I very much like their products. I have nothing to gain by saying that we do not sell the products. I can only speak, as I find, from a user perspective. Well, I've talked for quite some time now, but thank you for listening to me, and I hope to talk
0: to you all again soon. Good to hear from you, Brian. And thank you for the informative and thoughtful contribution. Just a couple of comments on it from me. And of course, people are welcome to send their own thoughts and comments in as well. It is interesting how one person's positive is another's absolute negative. And for me, the strengths that you cite in the Victor Reader Stream are one reason why I would never own one. Because when I'm reading a book, I want to be alerted to things that might cause me to stop reading that book, be it a breaking news story or work-related email or something like that. So I find the lack of notifications on the stream really a limitation. But of course, that's exactly why there's a diverse marketplace of products out there to suit the preferences and the needs of different people. And clearly, a lot of people feel the same way that you do. I think the stream came out in 2007, and it's been a very popular product ever since. So people do want it. And on that basis, long may it continue. Regarding the Braille display issue, you know, this is interesting. When I think back on it, When I used a PacMate Braille display and the older Focus technology, so I think we're going back to the third generation, I had very few. In fact, I don't think I had any problems with ghost dots that you were talking about there. But yes, I can confirm since the fourth and now the fifth generation, I have and in fact have sent some units back. The fifth generation I haven't sent back yet. But it is definitely exhibiting some ghost dots, and I need to send it in for repair. Luckily, I do have a backup rail display. But when I mentioned this to Bonnie at dinner, she said she's seen quite a few people on Facebook saying that they've had exactly the same problem. So it seems like there might be a bit of a manufacturing weakness there that Vespero needs to address. I mean, that said, there are a lot of moving parts in Braille displays. So you are going to get some problems, but it seems like there are more problems than there should be. And that is unfortunate. I don't know how regularly you hear episodes, Brian, but the thing that holds me back from really looking at the Q Braille in a serious way is where they put the space bar. So we have talked about this. For me, the contortions you have to go through to sort of tuck your thumb under to press the spacebar because it is right below the keyboard rather than below the display. I find that very uncomfortable, or I did when I demoed it briefly, but it is a cool concept. I'm still hanging out for the Mantis, and I do hope to be able to get one to evaluate, or I might just buy one because the Mantis sounds like a great display, and I think I would prefer actually to use the QWERTY keyboard on that. we have an email from donna lambert actually it's donna j lambert i do enjoy the way a lot of americans do this here they put their middle initial and i sit here thinking i wonder what that stands for maybe the j stands for jonathan that'd be cool donna jonathan lambert it's got a ring to it anyway she says hi jonathan i downloaded your audio biography and thoroughly enjoyed listening to it well thank you so much glenn did a great job I have loved listening to your voice since 2002 when you were doing tech news on Main Menu, I think it was. It almost didn't matter to me what you were talking about. I just loved listening to you. Well, gosh, thank you. Anyway, I remember when you were doing a comparison with the Braille Note and the PacMate. But the more you got into the demonstration, I could tell that you were super excited about the PacMate and its many features. Gee, how was HumanWare going to take that? It seemed obvious to me that you felt the Brown note paled in comparison. And then later I heard you worked for FS. Well, um, actually, I worked for Humanware first, Donna. <laughs> so I, I was asked, sort of shoulder tapped, to go and work for Humanware and essentially bolster the capabilities of the Brownout and come up with the next version and shepherd the blindness products there. So, yes, I did end up at Freedom, but I did three years at HumanWare before that and of course after i recorded that comparison she continues i was interested in buying a pacmate but simply couldn't do it at the time several years later i bought a bx 400 from a seller on ebay it's somewhat flaky after all these years but it does work in may of this year thanks to the stimulus check I was able to buy a new Focus 40 Blue 5th generation and am writing on it right now. Whoa! It is connected to my computer via USB. You answered a question I had on the previous podcast. I was about to ask Ron Miller. Oh, any relation? How to make the Focus perform word wrapping. Then I heard you say that this machine doesn't have that function since it's a bare bones note taker. I do wish that there was this capability. It would make for a better reading experience. However, since I'm using the device with my computer, the word processor takes care of word wrapping. The L sounds like a great machine. And now that I have the Focus 40 Blue, I'll have to see about getting it at another time. If the Focus didn't have these note-taking capabilities, I wouldn't have purchased it at all. I mainly wanted this machine, so I could read books and do some writing. So it fits the bill for me. And then she continues, I guess since she's heard the In the Arena audiobiography biography of me, Oh my gosh, I also had the Baldwin fun machine, and it was a fun machine. I've bought, sold, traded up many times over since 1980 when I got that little organ. My main instrument is a Yamaha Reus ydp V 240. I wanted all the bells and whistles, but couldn't afford a clever Nova, which is Yamaha's top of the line digital piano. Anyway, it blew my mind when I heard that you had a Baldwin fun machine. Now that I know about Mushroom FM, I'll listen to it on my Amazon Echo. My husband and I each have one. Our musical tastes are somewhat different. I'm into a lot of classical and in my lighter moods, I like music from the 60s to the 80s. Thanks so much for reading this long post. My husband and I both love mushrooms. Well, there you go, Donna. If you like the 60s through the 80s, you are absolutely going to love what we play on Mushroom FM. And I've got the honor of working with a really talented bunch of people from around the world who host the shows. So I look forward to you checking it out. The Baldwin Fun Machine was indeed a great little device. And then I eventually upgraded to a Yamaha C605. Electronic organs were really big in the 80s, weren't they? I also played a lot of organs because I got on the shopping mall circuit, believe it or not. And so I played quite a lot of organs, including the Elka E49, which was a lovely thing. It had like a Hammond drawbar type arrangement. And also the Hammond Composer. That was quite an expensive one. And once or twice, I even got to play a Yamaha FX20, which was a hideously expensive organ, but it was digital. I mean, we were amazed when it came out because it had these digital sampled instruments, digital drums, and that's why it was so expensive in the mid-80s because it was such a revolutionary product for its time. I um, used to play a bit for my kids on an acoustic piano, you know, just at birthday parties and to amuse them and things. But I've really got very rusty. I mean, at one point I was doing music with the Royal Schools of Music. But when my father died in 2017, I suddenly had this urge to play. And so I bought this Yamaha keyboard and I don't remember the model number, but it's a fully weighted keyboard. It's full length piano with also the kind of organ functions like the digital rhythms and automatic accompaniment if you want to do that kind of thing. and I just play it because it gives me some peace and sort of therapy to play it. It's a it's a nice hobby to have. Saying hi to a new listener, Mark Finnegan, who says, I have been listening to your Mosin at Large podcast for the last few weeks. I was made aware of it when the Freedom Scientific podcast played a clip of your tip for overcoming the problem of JAWS missing the first letter of a word due to sound cards going silent. I have looked into the back catalogue of both your current offerings and the Blind Side podcast. I am glad to be on board, albeit late. I'm glad to have you on board as well, Mark. Welcome. My question is about the work you have been doing in the podcast on the merits of Braille displays. I am studying Braille in England with a home study course from the RNIB. I have got grade one now and am beginning to learn the contractions that will speed up my reading and writing. I think that having a means to write as well as read Braille would aid my learning. I am very slow at the moment, and the going is a bit frustrating. However, I did not learn to touch type until I was 33, and I can now do about 50 words a minute if I am typing out of my head. (laughs) I am still having to think hard as I practice the Perkins finger movements without keys, but hopefully in time I will pick up speed. I am pretty much sold on the Focus 40 Blue 5th generation, which I am going to purchase from the UK distributor of JAWS in the near future. You mentioned with the Focus that the note-taking facilities, I take a lot of notes for team and working group meetings, does not have a word wrap facility. When you get to the end of a line, does the display require the equivalent of a carriage return, or does it just continue by producing the second half of the word on the next line? Your frustration with this feature, or lack of it, comes over strongly in your podcasting. Oh dear. The main reason for wanting to be proficient in Braille is that I have read that blind people in employment tend to do better if they have some independent means of reading away from their desk. An NFB article described people who can't read away from their desk as being functionally illiterate. I am beginning to agree with this viewpoint and would like to have some private means of reading and note-taking. It would certainly increase my productivity if I could listen to a meeting and take notes without JAWS in the other ear. This does result in me missing details while I am typing. Parting with the amount of money necessary to acquire the hardware is not easy. I feel that having money in the bank is a poor substitute for being able to read without either JAWS or an audiobook in my ears. I suppose, as a blind person, I have escaped the torture of having to buy a car every few years and keep it fueled and paying insurance and road tax. I was warned by an RNIB rehabilitation officer many years ago that if I relied on reading entirely through my ears, my spelling would suffer. This is probably true. I am 53 years old at the moment. I registered as a blind person about 30 years ago. I miss my relationship with books and words. An audiobook Puts you at the mercy of a narrator whose voice you can stand to be able to read in silence or with classical music in the background is something I would very much like to experience again. I have read some success stories of people coming to Braille late in life and making a success of it. I would very much like to join their ranks. Listening to your podcast has greatly encouraged me to keep going in what may be a long journey. Many thanks. Good for you, Mark. That was a fantastic message. I really appreciate you sending it in to answer your specific question. It's the latter scenario that happens with the scratch pad in the Focus 40 Blue fifth generation. So when you have a word whose characters can't fit on the line, it will just split the word so you can keep typing. You don't have to put manual carriage returns or anything like that. And when you pan the Braille display, you'll see the next part of the word that didn't fit on the previous line. Way back in the 1990s, there was a really good video that the NFB had around. And I don't know if they still have it around. They may well have updated it by now, but it was called That the Blind May Read. And it really talks about the many benefits of reading Braille. You highlighted some of them. There was a really moving thing. I think it might have been in that video or it could have been in a braille monitor article or a book i read somewhere but it was definitely nfb related that talked about a parent who was nose in the book trying to read to their child it was a mum i remember and the child was so frustrated by her slow reading speed trying to squint at this large print that the kid snatched the book away from the mother and said daddy read daddy read and she was devastated And that's what got her on her Braille journey. The whole question of functional literacy is a very sensitive subject because people who aren't Braille readers feel attacked. And in a way, I'm saddened by that response because people who didn't have access to Braille often should have. And... It's not the answer to dis Braille. I think the answer is to be concerned about the fact that people who should be reading Braille are missing out on it. To me, literacy is about reading something that someone else has written or that you have written for yourself, having the tool to write something down and read something back. If your computer is speaking that information to you, you are not reading it. Your brain's processing the information, sure, and you can be a very intelligent person surviving just on text-to-speech, no doubt about that, but I don't think it's full literacy. I wish you all the best, and I do know of adults who have really stuck at it and got some good brow reading speed going, and based on your attitude that's coming through so clearly in this email, I reckon you are going to succeed, and I wish you nothing but many years of joy and happiness with your reading. Podcast. Petra writes, good morning, Jonathan. I'm looking for the best weather app. A couple of years ago, I had one that I think was called Dark Sky. It seemed to actually use GPS to get me the weather right where I was. Even when riding in a car, it would update so quickly that it couldn't get the words out before we had moved on, and it was trying to tell me with precision what the weather was right there. My daughter had the same app and received a message that Apple was taking it over. They said it was good news, but after that she received notice that it was going away on August 1st. I would appreciate any advice about a simple, accurate weather app, one that works with GPS if possible. You mentioned one you liked very much a while back. I don't think you're using that same one now. Any advice would be appreciated. I think the dark sky news is actually good news if you're an Apple user like you are, Petra, because the dark sky technology is being embedded right in to your iPhone. So what I would suggest you do is wait for iOS 14 and see if you like some of the dark sky technology that is being baked right in to iOS. So you may find that the weather app you have in iOS 14 will not necessitate the installation of anything else. Now, if I was still doing a lot of international travel, the two that I would recommend, because I'm not going to bother talking about the New Zealand app, which would be of no value to you at all. So the two I would recommend would be the Carrot Weather app, which is a really brilliant app. It's got a bit of snark in it. You can turn the snark on and off. It's got a lot of features. Some of them require a premium subscription to get them, but you can really customize the experience. There are lots of Siri shortcuts. It is location aware. It's brilliant. And the other one that I think is is very well done is the Weather Gods app. And I know a lot of blind people like Weather Gods. These guys are really committed. In fact, I think it's just one of those single developer jobs. He is really committed to accessibility. And the big win about Weather Gods is that you can hear the weather when you load the app. You can sort of hear the birds and whether there's rain outside, and it's quite a nice gimmick. But it's also very accessible. So the two that immediately come to mind, Carrot Weather and Weather Gods. But there are lots of weather apps out there. It seems to be a big industry. Both Carrot Weather and Weather Gods have good Apple Watch apps as well. Help Petra out. What's your favorite weather app and why? Get in touch. Jonathan at MushroomFM.com. The phone number 864-60-MOSIN in the United States. Dear Jonathan, says this email, Benji here, a new listener from the UK, and I thought I would share with you my experiences of using voiceover on iOS devices. In short, the on-screen Braille, yes, with a capital B, he says, keypad is for me, the most important feature of the screen reader. It enables me to enter data in contracted Braille in any of the dozens of languages supported more efficiently than most sighted users who are restricted to the QWERTY layout. For example, I manage email, social media postings and WhatsApp messages from my iPhone SE, which I can carry around in my pocket, no need for any external keyboard. For some reason, however, very few brailleists are even aware of the feature. Maybe it does not receive the publicity it deserves. What are your thoughts? Well, good to hear from you, Benji. We have talked about Braille screen input a lot on the show. And in fact, on the blind side, which is a predecessor to Mosin at large, we had Judy Dixon demonstrating Braille screen input at some depth, actually. And we have talked about the new Braille screen input for Android as well. Yes, I'm a big fan of Braille screen input. And when I don't have my Braille display with me, most of the time, unless I'm writing a really complex document where I'm going to do a lot of thinking and editing and formatting, I will just use Braille screen input. I write fairly lengthy emails with it. I tweet a lot with it. Yeah, Braille screen input is one of my favorite features of iOS as well. Well, that's me. And I've got a conundrum for you today. Let's say that something happened, some edict came along and it said you can only have either a computer or a smartphone, but you can't have both. My question for you is, which one would you keep and why?
2: Hello, Jonathan and everybody. This is Herbie Allen from Houston. And uh, Jonathan, you asked a very interesting question. What would we keep if we could only pick one, the computer or the smartphone? And I would have to say, beyond a shadow of a doubt, the smartphone. I mean, yes, there are some things that are a lot easier to do on the computer, such as broadcasting, word editing, stuff like that. But the smartphone is in itself a computer. And, well, it's a lot easier to carry around with you. And you have access to mobile internet as well as your uh, own Wi-Fi. So, yeah, I would definitely keep the smartphone if I can only pick the one.
0: Ooh, ponder, 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 Herbie. Thank you very much. Here's Rebecca on this subject, and she says, This is a tough question. Well, that's why we asked it, you see. She says, I'd give up the computer, though, and keep the iPhone. I'd miss the productivity of the computer but I can get a ride and emergency alerts on the iPhone. The only situation in which my decision would be reversed is in an office environment. If I had a boss that said, you were limited to one device on your desk, I'd give up the phone and keep the computer. Context is everything. However, if there was an emergency of some sort, the phone goes and the computer stays. Hey Jonathan,
4: my name is Anil. I want to comment on topic of keeping computer or smartphone when you have only one choice. To me, this is very user-specific thing. If a user using these kind of gadgets from past 10 years, obviously they would keep their computer over their smartphone. But if they are a new person who entered into a technology field since maybe two or three years they would always find their smartphone the product to keep if you ask me what i would keep i would always prefer my pc over my smartphone it's just the fact that it has more control more freedom and more settings that you can tweak under the hood whereas smartphone you can only tweak the settings in the level of user interface.
5: Hey, Jonathan, this is Peggy Kern. I thought I would take a moment to answer your question for this week's show about whether if I had to choose between a computer or my phone, which would I choose? And I think I I wouldn't want to have to choose, but if I did have to choose... I would choose my phone because I actually use it all the time, even more than the computer. I like having the ability to have Internet access wherever I am. And usually I'm out here in the main part of the house where I can just uh, check the net or do whatever I want to do. But like I say, I wouldn't want to have to be without the computer because there are certain things that are harder to access from the phone the one that comes to mind is when i visit my account at the blood bank for whatever reason and i haven't figured out yet i'm unable to log in from the phone i see the where it says to log in but i can't once i press it i can't find the edit fields to input my username and password and i don't know why so that i always go to the big computer for that and i use the big computer to listen to music a lot of times or listen to my exercise routines whatever so uh, i do like having a computer but i think if i had to choose i would choose the phone just for its portability and uh You know, getting pretty much all the information I need. With just a few exceptions. So anyway, that's my answer and I'm sticking to it. Well (laughs) So what would you choose, Dan? Your computer or your phone if you had to choose. Oh well (laughs) that Okay, let me end this. We're getting
2: crazy here. Hey, Jonathan. Well, I've had thoughts on on both of the questions you put forward. Keeping the iPhone rather than a computer. That's an easy one for me. If I had to choose, I would absolutely pick the iPhone. I'm just I do a lot more with greater ease with it than than I have now with the computer. I have a perfectly good laptop. And uh, everything is, is now possible on the iPhone. So provided I can also have a Bluetooth keyboard, uh, then it's, it's a no-brainer. Uh, the, the iPhone stays, the computer would go. I would miss it. I still use it for playing accessible games. And there are plenty of those that, that are only for Windows. You cannot play them on an iPhone. I, I think there's a lot more potential for games that hasn't really been tapped uh, So possibility space on the iPhone that perhaps has been explored on Windows. But other than games, I really don't need a computer for anything uh, unless my iPhone is occupied, in which case I might use it for something you know, while it's uh, backing up to the cloud. Um, weather app. Prob- my favorite is uh, still Weather God's. Uh, I am interested when the uh, new uh, this dark skies thing uh, comes out, I guess in iOS 14, uh, that'll be included in the weather app. And I will examine uh, if that makes much of a difference uh, to the regular app. But really, I, I can't imagine it displacing weather gods. It's, I love the atmosphere. I love the, the effort he put into making that app accessible for so many years, and uh, that that counts for me.
0: Good to hear from you, Mike. Thanks. And yes, the developer of Weather Gods is incredible in terms of his dedication to the app and his dedication to accessibility. It really is commendable. Coming back to this question of if you had to pick computer or smartphone, I really thought about this carefully because I've been using computers for a long time. It would be really difficult for me to produce Mosin at large in the way that I do, without a really good desktop computer and all the gear connected to it. But then I realized that if I really had for some reason to make a choice, I could still keep going with pretty much all the things I need to do on my smartphone. I might take a massive efficiency hit. In fact, I would. There'd be no doubt that I would take A massive efficiency hit. But I'd still be able to get things done. I'd still be able to write documents. And actually, thanks to Ulysses and Markdown, make a fine job of formatting them and making them look nice. You can send them to a printer thanks to AirPrint on the iPhone. I could still put podcasts and things together. It would slow me down, I think, to have to work in some of the iOS apps. And live broadcasting is possible with Backpack Studio, not as efficiently, but I could do it. Yet if I went the other way and if I said, all right, I'm going to ditch the smartphone and keep the computer, I would lose so much because for content consumption, my smartphone is now my primary device by a long way. I read books with it. I read most of my email with it. I do all of my social media with it, quite a bit of video conferencing with it. And then there's all the navigation the OCR apps that are portable, you know, the blindness related apps. So I realized it's actually less of a conundrum for me than I thought. If I really had to pick, I would now keep the smartphone and ditch the computer. I would prefer to have a Bluetooth keyboard, as Mike says. I would strongly prefer it. But with Braille screen input, I would get by. So, yep, I'll play i'll contribute to this it would be the smartphone that i would keep what do you think Eight six four six zero 60 mosin is the phone number if you want to contribute that is in the united states 864 you can email with an audio attachment or write something down to jonathan at mushroomfm.com and let us know what you think brian says hi jonathan this is a very interesting yet hard question to answer he's talking about the computer versus smartphone thing I use both my phone and my computer for so much, but I have done a lot of thinking about this and I think I have an answer. It seems that I am increasingly using my phone for more and more these days. This includes listening to podcasts, reading books with my braille display, playing games and many other things. While I still very much use my computer, I do think it would be harder to live without my iPhone 11 Pro. What I will say, however, is that I actually prefer browsing the web with my computer most times. If I am out and about, Safari does the job. But I find that JAWS with Edge and Chrome easier to use, and I notice that Safari sometimes omits information from web pages. One way that you could fix that one, Brian, is to make sure you load the desktop version of the site, which is available in Safari. In conclusion, Brian continues, if I had to choose one device, it would be my phone. There are far more audio games for the computer, and I am a big audio gamer, but it's a question of what I need versus what I want, and I see games as a want. Here's Doug Huntinger on the computer versus smartphone issue and says, Hi, Jonathan. If I had to choose between my PC or iPhone, it would have to be the iPhone, of course, with braille display. When traveling, I'd be lost without my GPS apps. When a bus I'm riding doesn't have audible stops enabled, no worry, I have my phone. As you've pointed out, I still have access to writing and printing documents plus portable access to radio, podcasts, news, and social media. Although I'm not broadcasting now, I would miss the station playlist software if I didn't have a PC. Ian Lackey says, well, I think this for me is a simple choice. It has to be the phone. Since I started on the iPhone journey, the use of my computer has grown less and less. There are so many things which are just so much easier on the phone. Banking is one example where the app is just so much easier than my bank's website. Yes, I'd agree with that in my case too, Ian. On lists on which I participate, people are continually going on about the problem of accessing services such as Audible using a PC. On the phone, Audible is a breeze. I could go on, but I don't think I should. Time is short. No, the phone's the thing. Interesting you mention email there because email to me, Ian, is another one that it is just so much easier to do on the phone. The threading feature of iOS mail, Apple mail, I guess, for iOS is so cool because when you're on an email list, you can open up the thread and just swipe down to seamlessly move from message to message. Absolutely slick. And yes, banking is so much easier for me on the iPhone, too. Thank you, Ian.
6: Hey, Jonathan, it's me, Kayla. Hope you guys are doing fine and hope you are doing fine. First answer to your question about keeping a smartphone or a computer. I can't seem to choose, actually, because computer and a smartphone go hand in hand, in my opinion, for me, because I have a um a big old, e- like a quite a big ecosystem in my room as far as that goes. With um, a MacBook Pro, a mid-2012 model, which is no longer going to be supported with Big Sur. Oopsie. Sad, sad face. Um, Next part is I love my iPhone 11 Pro because it goes hand-in-hand with my Mac with a lot of stuff. Especially with hands-off. And iPod Touch generations. generation. It just, it just syncs together. I mean, that's what it is about Apple products. They're just ecosystems. It's just too easy to to take apart, so that's why it's a big, hard decision, but if if I was a Windows user, which I am also a Windows user, I would rather keep a computer, to be honest, because you have a lot of stuff you can do. It's a powerhouse. With uh, Especially with certain parts of RAM, and I have... There's certain apps that work better on Windows than others. And then... Another response to the question is, it's about literacy for kids, bro. literacy for kids. I agree wholeheartedly on that because I have books in my room that I kept over the years that I cherish memories of that I want to pass down to my kids.
0: Oh my word, it's the highly remarkable Robin Frost, who I've been corresponding with on social media for eons, eons. But I don't think she's ever written into the show before, so welcome to you, Robin. Oh, see, now I have to breathe. My Apple Watch is excited about it too. Hi, she says, I found the first question regarding computers versus smartphones interesting. I actually had to pause and ponder it. For years ago, I'd have said definitely computers because of their power and greater ease of use in some regards. However, Now, when facing that question in this very time and place, I think I'd say smartphone, because in so many ways, they can rival their computer siblings, and they have the advantage of portability. It was a very thought-provoking question indeed. Well, thank you, Meg. You can thank Tiffany, 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 Tiffany for that. As for weather apps, says Robin, my friends often joke that I'm the queen of weather apps as I usually run with around 10 on my device at any given time. Again, this is a topic that has changed over time. Years back, I'd have said I have so many because each has a feature unique to itself or does something better than another. However, I am glad to say that over time, this has become less true and that which they do well has become much more universal throughout. Still, I'm a fan of redundancy in case updates break accessibility. Having said that, if I had to whittle them down to my can't-be-without apps in this category, I'd have to pick WeatherBug for its ease of use when reading the main weather screen and the ability to reorder the elements appearing on that screen. Weather Gods because its presentation of information is accessible and it boasts a plethora of alerts and notifications from which to choose and a very responsive developer and the weather channel and weather radio tie for the bottom of my list because while their alerts are accurate and i enjoy having them the presentation of information once inside the app isn't always the easiest with which to deal when using voiceover at least right now Still, I keep them because their alerts are accurate and timely. Thank you so much for that contribution, Robin. It sounds like weather apps for you are what audio apps are for me, so good on you, and it's nice to hear you.
7: Hello, Jonathan. Recently, I've been playing around reassigning gestures because I was having great trouble with the scrub gesture. Still, after all this time, I figured it was about time I did something about it. So I've now made a two-fingered less swipe work for the what they call escape don't they i've also um tried and i don't know if it's going to be successful or not to do the magic tap as a two-fingered swipe right a lot of people warn me about not doing this because it might accidentally activate something i didn't want to but so far so good i find that when you're double tapping with two fingers to do something. If you're recording or something like that, it can come out on the recording. Also, it causes all sorts of other problems, which um, is because my fingers don't seem to double tap very well when they're together. But anyway, that's just me. What I was going to ask you was, on a completely different note, is it possible on the iPhone to ban any number starting with a series of digits? We have a problem here where premium rate numbers which we can ring but are not normally used to ring you are being used by some scammers to ring you. They ring the phone just once and if you're busy somewhere out and you try and return the call you then get billed at a premium rate for hearing a message saying thank you for calling we'll get back to you. So I decided it would be a good idea if if we could ban just the prefix bit because the number, I think it's an 0843 or something, or something like that, is actually about £1.18 from a mobile. So presumably Vodafone, who I'm with, wouldn't care because they're going to get their cut, aren't they? And um, the scammer, no doubt, is uh, laughing all the way to the bank if enough people get rang. And all we've got to do is have a thing sitting there ringing every number under the sun for the rest of the day.
0: Yeah, it's a real frustration, isn't it, Brian? We have a similar scam going on here. The answer is I'm very confident that what you want is not possible in the native UI of iOS. There was, I think, an API, sorry about all the acronyms, an application programming interface that was inserted into iPhone a while ago relating to phones but I don't think it goes as far as being able to let third party apps set up what is essentially a block rule. So, you do see this on VOIP applications on routers and things like that. You can do certain things with prefixes. I don't believe it is possible in iOS, but if there is some sort of way around it, it'll be through a third party app. So, if anyone has the answer for us, let us know. In the meantime, A few rules of engagement, I think, for phone callers. First, if someone calls me and doesn't leave a voicemail or doesn't leave a text and I don't recognize the number, I just do not call them back. If they want me badly enough, they'll call again. And it is kind of rude when people don't leave any message to indicate why they're in touch. So I just don't call back strange numbers. That is one of the reasons these scams that are going on. Bernice Kandarian puts this little piece together. She says this year the disability community is celebrating the 30th anniversary of the Americans with Disabilities Act, which was signed into law July 26, 1990, by then-President George H.W. Bush. Radio and TV interviews and lots of Zoom calls are happening throughout July, involving our old friends who were around at the time, And the George and Barbara Bush Foundation at Texas A&M University in College Station, Texas, is having a major celebration. One of my fondest memories was the actual signing of the act on the White House lawn by President Bush. Most notably, I remember Representative Tony Kilo, I'm apologizing if I mispronounced that, from California, and Senator Tom Harkin from Iowa who had sponsored the ADA in their respective houses of Congress. Tony had epilepsy and was barred from becoming a Roman Catholic priest. Tom's brother was deaf, such amazing congressman. I knew three of those on the podium to one degree or another. Justin Dart, known as the godfather of the ADA, used a wheelchair as a result of polio. Justin always had on a suit and tie with cowboy boots and cowboy hat with an American flag pin on the headband of the hat. One day, when Roger and I were boarding a United Airlines plane, we saw the name Justin Dart in big letters between the door and cockpit. We commented to Justin, who said his father was on the board. His mother's maiden name was Walgreen. Her family owned some drug stores. Justin mentioned he started a business in Japan selling Tupperware, which allowed him some financial independence. So he and his wife, Yoshiko, traveled in all 50 of the United States, assessing the need for what became the ADA. When ACB created our life membership, Justin Dart was at that general session calling for someone to take his check, making him the first ACB life member. Evan Kemp started feeling muscular discomfort at age 12. He was diagnosed with muscular dystrophy and told he would only survive two more years. Evan continued his education, graduating from the University of Virginia Law School. He sought employment from 39 law firms but was not accepted. He got a federal government job and was given the accommodation of using the garage elevator but not the accommodation of parking in the garage so he was to struggle to walk into the garage to the elevator. One day the garage door came down on him, injuring him badly. Evan sued the federal government successfully. President Ronald Reagan appointed Evan to the Equal Employment Opportunity Commission and President George H.W. Bush appointed him chair of the EEOC. Evan's condo was three blocks from my apartment building, I learned, when he held a party, inviting friends to come and bring more friends. That is how we met. Reverend Harold Wilkie was born without arms. He introduced himself to Roger at a luncheon by way of apologising in advance should he knee Roger while eating with his feet. Reverend Wilkie accepted one of the pens from President Bush, reaching for me with his foot. His organization, the Healing Community, played a major role in making churches part of the ADA's effectiveness. These individuals stand out in my memory when someone mentions the ADA. Thank you, Bernice, they are great memories.
8: This is Irene calling from Mesa, Arizona. I was calling to make some comments about the ADA. Um, The ADA never had any provisions for employment other than the retention of jobs. But as far as keeping jobs, that was never a part of it. We gave accessibility to buildings and making traffic lights and things like that easier. But it has not done anything for getting jobs I wish it had. And you were also asking about why the vending program. Um, I think the vending program is still good because sighted people are starting to take a lot of those places that we used to have under the steps. And they're having doing things like selling coffee in a pot of soup and things like that. And I think that's, if, if we give that, the vending program up, that'll be a job permanently lost. And I think also that if we take some of those things too, we can keep the program going to, to help keep our employment. Right? And I think anything to help keep employment is a good thing. Most of the
0: torch, It's wonderful to get email from people all over the world. Here's one that says, I am Kavetran from Malaysia, and I am loving your style and content very much since the early days. I am a heavy tech geek and love everything that falls within it. I use JAWS and NVDA for my screen reading, and I should say that NVDA with eSpeak had opened up many possibilities and opportunities for me. For example, I can read my native Tamil language books, blogs, and messages with eSpeak, which is just a dream 10 years ago. Most importantly, I really find eSpeak to be more responsive in many cases, although I am a darling of eloquence. Branching to other areas, I consider myself an educated activist. Having a deep interest in science and nature, I am always intrigued by the ways this complex, emerging world. I love to learn about some books that have transformed you, either fiction or non-fiction. particularly books that guide, impact and influence your thought process to be an atheist and a disability advocate. That's a good question and an interesting one, because I have to suddenly think, what books have really been impactful for me? Probably the atheism side is the easiest part to answer. I've gone through phases, really, because I became an atheist 32 years ago. And having talked to a lot of people about this, it's a gradual process for many. There are kind of these niggling doubts that start, you know, with, well, if there really is a God, why is X happening? And then the doubts go deeper and deeper. So for a lot of people, it's almost a frightening process because you think, am I going to be struck down by, insert name of deity here, if I start thinking these thoughts. When you're at that stage, you probably need people who are a little bit outrageous. So over the years, there are books by people like Christopher Hitchens and Richard Dawkins, famous and slightly outrageous atheists. There's also a very good podcast, which I would highly recommend, called The Thinking Atheist, It's produced by a guy called Seth Andrews, who by day at least was, because I think he might be a full-time atheist advocate now in the United States, but by day he was a video producer, so he's got all the gear. His podcasts are really good quality, and he also presents them super well because he used to be a broadcaster. He used to work on Christian radio, so he was really into it. I think he comes from Oklahoma, if I remember correctly. And he's become very popular in the American atheist community. And he even wrote a book called Deconverted, which you can get on Audible. And he reads it. And I'd highly recommend checking out that book if it's a subject you're interested in. Deconverted by Seth Andrews and then his podcast, The Thinking Atheist. There's also some very good stuff by Sam Harris. I think he either wrote a book or has a podcast or something called Waking Up which I may have read at some point, he's a little bit more moderate in his language. And I think that does appeal to some people. I think one of the byproducts of people like Dawkins is that they are so aggressive that I think they just rub people up the wrong way. I think you can make your point on something as fundamental to one's core as religious beliefs without necessarily being confrontational. About it. So, I guess I've kind of outgrown Richard Dawkins a little bit over the years as I've just become more at peace with who I am. That said, as I've mentioned on this show, I have found that there are many scientifically proven benefits of meditation, and I've read quite a bit about that, various publications over the years, particularly Eckhart Tolle and his thinking. He is really an acquired taste. Some people just can't understand him at all. So, it might not resonate at all. But A New Earth by Eckhart Tolle, I mentioned in my audio biography, The Power of Now, but he came out with a book after The Power of Now that I think is better in some ways because he's had more time to distill his philosophy and clarify it. So the book A New Earth by Eckhart Tolle is also worth reading. Another book that had a huge impact on me, and I've read it several times, is Viktor Frankl's Man's Search for Meaning. This book has two parts. The first is autobiographical, and he talks about his experience in a Jewish concentration camp. The second talks about his theory of logotherapy. Man's Search for Meaning was just such an upsetting book as he recounts his story, but it was also the most powerful demonstration to me that sometimes we can't control what people do to us or what people say to us, but we can control how we react. The only thing that we have full control of is us, which is actually quite powerful in some ways. So Man's Search for Meaning is a difficult but remarkable read. And I know it's a bit of a cliche, but two Dale Carnegie books, How to Win Friends and Influence People and How to Stop Worrying and Start Living are both really good reads as well. I do read a lot of nonfiction. And in terms of inspiration and encouragement for advocacy, I read a lot of political biographies or biographies of civil rights leaders who are not necessarily in the disability sector. I think as a kid, I was inspired to do advocacy on blindness issues because I have an older brother who is also blind, and through him, I became exposed at a very young age to older people who were agitating, and even in the late 1970s here in New Zealand, marching in the streets for the right of blind people to determine their own destiny. And I was enthralled by this, and I got to meet, at a formative age, a lot of people who inspired me. So it wasn't so much the books, it was meeting those people and saying, okay, I understand now that I'm enjoying some of the rights that I do have because people made the sacrifice. And someone once said to me, If you've got some talent in this area, you have an obligation to give something back to blind people, which was a really powerful piece of advice. And I've tried to take it to heart. I guess that's why I've tried to volunteer in so many areas so I can give something back. Beatles books also inspire me, partly because it's some of the best music ever made, but also because they were young people who lived in Liverpool, weren't that well off, And they made something of themselves through quite a bit of luck, but a lot of effort, and they grew as people. And for me, that is quite inspiring, that it's not necessarily where you start in life, it's how you play the hand you dealt and where you finish. I do on occasion enjoy reading fiction, but I don't know whether I can immediately think of anything that's been hugely sort of life changing or impactful or anything like that, but I do like a lot of sci-fi and political stuff and that kind of thing. So I'm drawing a blank on fiction books specifically. And he continues, moving into podcasts. I've known previously that you've subscribed to School of Podcasting and some tech and politics shows, but do not have ideas on what are your other favorites. Maybe you can walk us through your favorite podcasts. One of the really cool features that I like with Castro is the ability to walk down the history of all previously listened episodes. Okay, I'll play. I listen to a lot of news content, news from New Zealand, news around the world. So RNZ here in New Zealand, our public broadcaster, News Talk ZB, various TV, political podcasts, and then material from the ABC in Australia, BBC in Britain, NPR in the US, and some of the networks as well. For example, The Rachel Maddow Show on MSNBC is pretty much compulsory listening for me. So I am a news junkie. That won't surprise anybody. I really do now that I have Castro. Love being able to just go through the stories. Sometimes the show notes of the podcast are enough to give me the headlines and just know what's going on. And then it's easy to choose which ones to listen to in depth. Of course, I also listen to The Archers, the BBC radio series every day. Will not miss that. And that one goes straight into my Castro queue. I'm listening to a really cool podcast at the moment, which I would recommend called British Broadcasting Century. And this is a very well-produced podcast looking at the history of broadcasting in Britain. And it goes even way before the BBC, and it's just getting to the point now where we're getting to the formation of the BBC. So British Broadcasting Century, if you like your radio history, is really good. I listened to The X-Files with David Axelrod, He took that thing to luminary for a while, that horrible abomination where they want to try and make people pay for proprietary audio content and call it a podcast. It isn't taking off. I am glad. And I'm also glad that David Axelrod is now back on the conventional podcast circuit. David Axelrod, of course, was a key strategist for Barack Obama, and he does great interviews. As a CEO, I do listen to quite a few podcasts on leadership. One of my favorites is one by Simon Sinek called A Bit of Optimism, and he talks to leaders about various things. And he also does a good interview. Simon Sinek's books on leadership, such as Start With Why and The Infinite Game are great if you're interested in improving your leadership skills. But this A Bit of Optimism podcast is also really good. There's also one produced by I believe it's LinkedIn called Hello Monday, which has some great interviews with leaders and talks about leadership skills. And Harvard Business Review also has one called IdeaCast, where they have many leaders in various types of business and some of the ideas about managing organizations, strategic planning, moving organizations forward. They are really thought provoking. I'm also a low-carb fiend, having never felt better in my life and lost a lot of weight. I think it's like 65 pounds in American measurements since I started now. And so I do listen to some low-carb podcasts, such as the Live and La Vida Low-Carb Show with Jimmy Moore, who I did interview on The Blind Side. Also, Dr. Mark Hyman has written some very good books on low-carb living. And what's cool about him is is that he was a cardiologist who used to think, ah, this low-carb stuff is a fad, it's dangerous, keep away. And then he realized that he wasn't curing his patients. You know, with the advice he was giving his patients, they weren't getting any better. So he did some more research and he found that the low-carb eating, keto eating, had become vilified for no scientifically plausible reason. And he completely did a 180. And he has a podcast called The Doctor's Pharmacy, and pharmacy is spelt with an F, not a PH. It's very good. The audio quality is superb as well. I also listen to Robin Christopherson's Dot to Dot podcast. He does a good job of that, and he puts one out every single day. I don't listen to every episode, but again, with Castro, you can just have a look at the skill that he's reviewing today and decide, do I want to hear this? Dot to Dot is a show that just showcases very briefly about five minutes and Amazon Echo Skill. Most of the time, Robin seems to do them, but he does have some guests as well. I do listen to In Touch, the BBC podcast on blindness issues. It's originally a show, of course, on BBC Radio 4, and sometimes the podcast is actually extended beyond the length of the show. For geeking out with audio, I really do enjoy the podcast engineering show. He does two things with this podcast. One is he gets somebody in who's also an audio geek, and they just totally geek out with the most extraordinary things. They go into great detail about producing audio. And then every second episode, it appears to be, is where he goes through a summary of some of the blog posts that he's written, where he highlights, I think he calls it his goodie bag. And from that podcast, the podcast engineering show, I've learned about all sorts of gadgets that I have subsequently bought. So there you go. They should keep you going for a bit.
2: Here's
0: an email from Glenn Dortch who says, Hi, Jonathan. First off, I would like to thank you for generously sharing your many technology experiences with the blindness community over the years. From my earliest days listening to you on ACV radio, I gained an understanding of how to thoroughly dissect a product for its accessibility or lack thereof. (laughs) Dissection is fun, isn't it, Glenn? I also appreciate your podcast, as it is a great way for those of us who just can't catch the show live. Thank you for your kindness, Glenn. I really do appreciate that. He continues, I am writing in with a few topic ideas that I hope you will consider for the show. One, several years back... You posted about your discovery of a NAS, that stands for Network Attached Storage, product, providing you great flexibility with file storage at home. Since your post about Synology, the company claims to have greatly improved accessibility. Although I haven't been able to find many user stories documented outside the corporate bubble. Are you still using the Synology for home file storage? If not, what solution have you migrated to? Yes, Glenn, after that first Synology post, accessibility got way better, and Synology contacted me, and we did a bit of work, and they kept me in the loop. So I posted a second offering on the subject to say that it had gotten considerably better. It's kind of quirky. It's accessible, and I think as screen readers have become more adept at Web 2.0 type applications, it's also better. There's a lot inside the Synology control panel. But I still have that original Synology that I blogged about. I think I got that in 2014, if I'm remembering correctly. And it just does its thing. You know, it sits in a corner, it updates itself. The iOS apps are fully accessible. So often Bonnie and I listen to old-time radio serials and things that I have stored on the Synology. And we just use the app on the smartphone, dial it up and send it to one of the Sonos devices. So yes, I still recommend Synology. With a product like that, a network-attached storage product, you really want it to just do its thing and not bother you. You know, it should just be pretty inconspicuous. And for the most part, that has been the case for me. I had one drive fail in it, which has nothing to do with Synology itself. It was a Western Digital Red drive that failed, and I replaced that with a Seagate. But because of the RAID configuration I had, I lost no data and it was all just seamless. I swapped the drive over and it backed itself up and did its magic. So I will probably update my Synology. I know the processes keep getting faster and those things, but you know, for what we need it for, it just works. So yes, I don't go into the control panel very often, but when I do, it seems to be behaving itself pretty well these days. It's a complex environment because of all the things it can do, but it does work. Continues Glenn. On a recent episode, I believe it was 40 or thereabout, a listener, Robin, I believe, was demonstrating their mixer setup. During this demonstration, he used the Mac and Windows VM virtual machine. I have tried to get along with VMware Fusion, though I have always found it difficult to get keyboard focus to the virtual machine. On this demo, however, the process seemed to run smoothly every time. (laughs) Could be the joys of editing there. (laughs) I am curious to know if Robin wouldn't mind sharing how he configured the virtual machine to run so seamlessly alongside VO. Thanks, as always, for the informative, entertaining podcast. It's been about four years since I was in the VMware sandbox, as it were. But I seem to remember the trick was to use your VO keys to get focus to the window. And once it was there, it stayed there when you command tabbed between windows. Or well, maybe you tabbed to get there. That's possibly what it was. Anyway, maybe Robin is listening. And if he isn't, I'll try and ping him and say that he was name dropped twice, twice on this very episode of Mosin at Large and see if he can chime in. But maybe other Mac users who are running VMware Fusion can also do the same, chime in and give us some feedback on the best way to just seamlessly command tab from Mac OS to Windows. Make the most of it while you can, because Apple Silicon is coming. Hi, Jonathan says, Steffi, I am writing to ask whether you could recommend a good bookkeeping program. I have decided to be self-employed and am contracted to work for a company expenses will be low but I definitely have to keep good records I hear we blind get a good tax break but it still pays to keep things in order I must admit this is the worst part for me of running a business I find it drudgerous and so I had an accountant when I was running my company full time and we had a system set up where they would just get data direct from my bank and would crunch the numbers, and do the magic, and file the tax, and all that kind of stuff. So you may want to go down that route, or you may not. There is a package called Cash Manager, which really got quite passionate about accessibility. They perceived a market in blind people operating small businesses, and Cash Manager is very accessible under Windows, I understand. It is a New Zealand-based company, and I know of several blind people We talked to them, I think, a long time ago on FScast, if I remember correctly, and it really did well. And I played with it, but I never kind of integrated it into my daily workflow as a small business owner when I was doing that. So let's open it up to the talented Mosin at Large audience and find out what people are using to keep books for their small business. And good luck with that, Steffi. I think self-employment is such a good strategy for many of us. Could you get past those attitudinal barriers? You can do things on your own terms. And of course, for blind people who have the non-24 thing going on, if you can get yourself into a small business where you can just deliver your deliverables whenever you want to deliver them, no one cares if you're up at two or three in the morning at your best living the non-24 dream. And it is one of the things I did enjoy about running my own business. It's a little bit more difficult when people need you around during the day to make decisions and be available for meetings. You can't deliver your deliverables, at t- well, not all of them anyway, at 2 or 3 in the morning. So best of luck.
4: Hello, Jonathan. This is Lewis from New Jersey. Long-time listener, first-time caller. To answer your question about which I would prefer, whether a computer or a smartphone, well, for me, there's no choice right now. I only own a computer. I guess if I did have a smartphone, I would stick with that. I, uh... Have a question by the way relating to computers. I am going to buy a Windows 10 machine soon and I would like to know when unboxing and setting up the computer, this is a brand new computer I'm going to buy, do I need sighted help for setup or can I do this on my own as a totally blind person? Thank you very much and I'm listening to show and love it. Thank
0: you so much, Lewis. I really appreciate that. Hope you're doing okay in New Jersey. I think we are there, man. I think we are there. I think that you could take a new PC out of the box, plug it in, and as long as you can find the connections and everything like that, you should then be able to get to a point where you can press Control, Windows, Enter, get Narrator to come up and talk you through the setup. I think this process might be a little easier if you have a laptop that you're setting up. And the only reason why I say that is that it could be difficult to identify the right jack at the back of your computer. So if you're going to have to plug something in to your audio interface that spills into the computer, like headphones or speakers or something like that, then one of the things that could potentially hold you back is knowing which is which, you know, which is the right socket to plug into. But if you are able to get somebody to tell you that, even if you pick it up from a store and say, okay, which is the speaker slash headphone jack on this thing, then yes, I think it's definitely viable. We'll be interested in others' thoughts on this who have done this in recent times. I must say that while I believe it is possible, I haven't done it recently because normally when I set up a computer, it's kind of family geek out time. And I have one of my kids around with me and we We just get it done. Normally, I'm under some sort of time crunch. Another tool that I have used for setting up new computers that's quite handy is called Ninite. I haven't looked at this for a while, but you could build packages where it installs a lot of apps at once and you get an executable, you run that executable, and it goes ahead and installs.
1: Hello, Jonathan and fellow listeners. This is Larry in Louisville. I must say, I just discovered your show, and I'm completely captivated. I've been binge-watching or listening, as the case may be, in in reverse order, in fact. Love it. Love hearing all the comments and the great discussion. Keep up the great work. I did have a couple of comments, uh, one on the Kentucky Derby it was a heart-wrenching decision for the city of Louisville to postpone that, and we are all hoping that it'll still go off in September as scheduled, but the way things are changing every day, there's um, really no telling. I also wanted to comment on my wishes for iOS 14. The first few here are really simple. I would just like for it to announce the time correctly when you press the power button, uh, the the last couple of versions of iOS have not done this. They um, will cut the speech off before the the time is completely spoken, and it's uh, really annoying. Uh, This is another one that broke recently. You should be able to clear a message from the um, lock screen and have it count as read in the Messages app. That doesn't happen anymore. The third one is another really simple one that used to work, and that is when you're on the lock screen and you flick up to dismiss a notification. Uh, VO doesn't cut off the speech when you flick up. It still takes the flick. It just keeps right on announcing, though. Uh, next one, I'm, I'm with Joe Hodge on this one. I'd love to see an independent uh, media volume and a voiceover volume control. Now, this is a new one. This next one here is a uh, one that I don't think I've heard anybody um, express yet, but it would be very cool, and that is a gesture to disable the touchscreen. Now, why would you want to disable the touchscreen, you might ask? Well, that's a very good question. The reason you would want to do that is for these apps where you're watching a video and they uh, shut off when you put the phone to sleep. Now, I know that there's a couple of them, like um, Netflix, that will respect your wish to not look at the screen, but most of the video apps will go ahead and stop the video stream when you shut the screen down or even switch away from it. So this, this could have the possibility of being a confusing command because, you know, you might say, what's happening here? I can't touch the screen anymore. and And that'll be a drawback. I suspect something nice and simple like maybe pressing the power button could uh, you know, go ahead and put it to sleep, and then when it woke back up, it would uh, disable that uh, disabling of the touchscreen, if you will. Uh, the next one I'd love to see is a verbosity setting to eliminate the announcement of headings and lists and other things like that when you're in the read-all command. I, ju- I just want to hear the text. I, I want to hear it now, and I want to hear it fast. The uh, next one is something that Android has had for a few versions, and um, that is the ability to flick back and forth while in read-all mode without stopping the read-all. And then finally, I'm with you guys. I would love to have just a little vibrate when the phone is starting up. Anyway, those are my wishes for iOS 14, and uh, love your show. I'm, I'm working back from think I'm on 41 now, so I've got a few to go. Uh, keep up the great work. Love hearing it. Well, it's good to hear you, Larry. Thank you
0: so much. Just regarding that one suggestion you had on when you're doing a read-all, not hearing heading levels and things like that, which annoy me, one way you can reduce it a little bit is that when you go into the verbosity settings in voiceover settings, you can make voiceover play sounds for certain things like links and heading levels. And I've set this up for that reason. It frustrates me too, slows me down to hear that stuff when I'm reading. But of course, that applies no matter what. So I can certainly envision a scenario where you might want sound when you're reading all, but you don't want sound... Everywhere else, you want to hear the actual text of what's going on. That would be a nice addition, wouldn't it? Thanks, Larry. Here's Kelly Superger in Canada who says, Hi, Jonathan. I'm looking forward to this week's Mosin at Large show and podcast, which I'm now listening to with Castro. It's a great podcatcher, especially the chapter support. More on that in a moment. Oh, do we need to take a quick commercial break? If I had to choose what device I would keep, I'd go for the iPhone. Not only is it useful as a phone, but it's essentially a handheld computer. It's certainly a good option if my computer were to fail, as I can still send and receive emails, read books with Voice Dream Reader, Apple Books or Audible, and stay active with Twitterific or Facebook. I can also use apps like GarageBand, along with the camera connection adapter and one of my keyboards to compose and produce music on it. Speaking of the iPhone and recording apps, one app I'm trying to use is Ferrite Recording Studio. I understand it has the ability to create chapters for podcasts and would love to do that if I ever get back into podcasting. Unfortunately, I can't seem to figure out how to edit anything with the app, even after reading the documentation. I understand there are some videos demonstrating basic editing, though not how with voiceover. But the one I saw just had music and no narration. I hate it when companies do that, he says. Do you have any advice on how to get started with the app? It's been a long time since I really played with Ferrite for more than just basic recording, Kelly. But I will say that their support is absolutely fantastic. When I've had cause to write, he does write back and usually with helpful information. So maybe give him an email and let him know what it is that you're trying to do. I do recall that Fairlight is quite fiddly to edit with, at least it was in my opinion, because you sort of have to mark the segment that you want to delete. And um I did find his other app, which is called Hokusai, much easier, and it has some good keyboard support for marking segments very similar to the recorders that we're used to in Windows, but I don't know if that one supports chapters. Yes, it is that time of the week again where we bring you yet another Bonnie Bulletin. Hello, guys. Welcome. Hello, Guy.
9: Hi. How's it going? (laughs) Good. How are you doing?
0: I mustn't grumble. We should ask you the big question of the day. If you had to pick and you could only keep your computer or your smartphone what would you go for and why?
9: I'd probably keep my smartphone because technically, as Mika Paikola once told me when I got my first iPhone, it's really not a phone. It's a computer. And it is. So you can do pretty much anything on the iPhone that you can on a computer. Mm. And it's more portable. I, I honestly find myself more on my phone doing things than I do on my actual personal computer a lot of times, except,
0: you know, at work. But, so are there things that you find easier to do on the computer, though?
9: Yeah, oh, oh definitely. Word processing. You so haven't,
0: you haven't uh, adopted the Ulysses in your life much? Not
9: completely, no. I need to. I need to spend more time with Ulysses. Certainly doing the show, um, shopping, countdown, shopping, that sort of thing. Definitely easier on the computer.
0: I am so disappointed that there is no – voice track utility thing for station playlists because, and I I keep saying to the developer of station playlists, there's just such an opportunity going begging there if they would release a remote VT of station playlists. You
9: think they would.
0: Wouldn't it be cool? Mm -hmm. You could, I mean, it would make it so easy to do shows from all over the place and just send them back to the voice track server. It'd be marvellous. But apparently they don't have the resources to open up a new sphere of application development. mm so that's a shame. Yeah. All right. So you'd keep the you'd keep the smartphone. Yeah, I think so. Now the other thing we can talk about. We covered, of course, the launch of the what do they call that? Dragon Crew, Crew Space Dragon. Crew Dragon. Mm-hmm. And then later, as we put the show together live, I believe it's scheduled, unless there is some sort of weather delay, for seven thirty-four p.m. Eastern time. They're going to undock from the space station where they've been for the last few months, months or a couple of months. Yeah.
9: And come back. And come back. Yeah, and they'll be home tomorrow morning?
0: Yes. Splashdown. Yes, That's it's supposed cool. to be about, um, two. I think, 2.40 Eastern time tomorrow, if all goes well. Because, I mean, cool. getting up there is, of course, important. Getting yeah. down again is equally
1: important. Yeah,
9: and it'll be the first time they've splashed down since 75, I believe. Apollo Soyuz was the last time. A... No, mate, it's Skylab. Skylab, mate.
0: I think Skylab. Skylab just blew. I mean, Skylab no, no, just disintegrated. No, no, no,
9: cruise that... People that went to Skylab, the astronauts that lived on Skylab. They splashed down in the ocean. Right. So I'm not sure when the last American to splash down was.
0: Do you remember all the thing about no one quite knew where Skylab was going to fall? and a
9: friend of mine couldn't come over to my house until it fell.
0: Yeah. We were just fascinated by this as kids, sort of walking around the playground, wondering was a space thing going to fall on our heads? Because
9: didn't it fall near Australia or in Australia or something? I think
0: it was Perth or somewhere. Perth or something. Sure, we could ask the drinker. Yeah. Soup drinker. Where did Skylab come down?
5: This might answer your question. Skylab launched on May 14th, 1973, and it landed on July 11th, 1979.
0: No, it didn't really answer my question. Mm. But anyway, yes, I remember it was 1979, and yeah. ELO had just released don't bring me down oh gosh. and they put a big ad in the paper dedicating it to skylab yeah. which was good publicity but uh, marcel was walking around singing a little song called skylab let it fall on me
9: <laughs> yeah they had someone was singing skylab keeps falling on my head
0: <laughs>
9: instead of raindrops keep, yeah
0: well it's lovely to have you drop in Ooh. lovely and uh, we will look for. I, I still think you should start your own podcast.
9: Maybe one day. Yeah. Not, no, not now.
0: Now that we've got the. Now that we've got the tools.
9: I don't. I don't know what I talk about. I really don't. You never have a shortage of things. I to know, talk but about. you need to have a subject because I just don't enjoy the t- the podcasts where they get silly, and I just I don't know.
0: Yeah, you have to be careful. I mean, when you hear these podcasts where, where sort of you get are. two or three or four people getting yes. together, and 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 it sounds like you're. On the outside of an in-crowd, you know, yeah. and they, they've got all these little, like, laughing and giggling and they've got these, in- I can't stand that.
9: And some of them are quite
0: popular. It's, it's Well, the so it's us being curmudgeonly.
9: Maybe, but I like to learn something when I listen to a podcast. You know, if you're going to do an interview with someone, do a serious interview. I mean, if you want to have some of that personal time, then that's great. But there's a couple podcasts that I've stopped listening to because it's just too silly.
0: Yeah, the two things that stop me listening to a podcast are first, if they're doing something specific in a podcast, mm-hmm. like it's say a 45 minute, it's not like Mosin at large, which is clearly a long show mm-hmm. with various bits. If they're promising you the one purpose of this podcast is that they're interviewing some important guest that you're interested in, and then you have to sit through 15, 20 minutes of just waffle preamble, uh, that that annoys me. The second thing would be audio quality. Yeah. Something has to be really, really good for me to persist with with audio. And it is, it is hard when you're interviewing guests. And I've been guilty of this myself, where I've had a, a guest who one would consider pretty important and their time is limited and they turn up and they've got all they've got is, say, the microphone on their laptop or on one of those webcams. And it sounds like they're talking from the bath. Yeah. <laughs> and, you know, you try and get them as close to whatever mic they're using as they can and everything. But that that's sometimes the audio can be really bad. And then the whole sort of clickiness. if you feel like you are listening to a clique of people kind of giggling, carrying on, and you're not you don't feel like you're part of that clique. Mm-hmm. That really turns me off as well.
9: Yeah, and there's some podcasts that the audio is terrible, and I don't understand because it's not like it's they're doing it from their mother's basement. You know, these are – I know where they're coming from, and I'm not going to call out any names here. Why not? Uh, But some of the – no, I'm not. Um, <laughs> some of them – I mean, they're, they're media outlets. You know, it's it's not – They're not going on the cheap, but the podcasts are terrible. And I don't Mm -hmm. quite understand why they're so bad.
0: Some of them, I think it'll be because they're video podcasts.
9: Maybe. And
0: they place a lot of emphasis on the video. And um, getting a good distance from the camera and retaining good audio is really difficult. So we, for that sort of thing, well, not necessarily for the video, but we have a couple of these quite expensive Sony Mm -hmm. lavalier mics, which are used by TV networks. I Mm -hmm. think the BBC had a whole bunch of them. And that's good because you can clip them on to hopefully about sort of the middle of your chest or thereabouts, and that will give you good audio. But some people just don't bother. Yeah.
9: One know. of the worst platforms I ever saw, and I haven't seen anything recently. Seemed it seemed
0: like a long time ago that I was winding up the Bonnie Bulletin. Yeah, but anyway, no, it was go.
9: Blog Talk yeah. Radio. Oh, that was the
0: worst. Is that still a thing?
9: I don't know. There was a podcast that came from them. I don't know if they're still around, but they were awful. Sorry, yeah, guys.
0: I don't know how accessible that was, but that was a big thing because it allowed people to phone in. Yeah, and, and it um, was you, you had a kind of like a virtual oh, switchboard the on the screen.
9: Platform
0: was awful. We used to do that on Blind Line with Spider Phone. Spider way phone. back when.
2: Jonathan Mosen, Mosen at
0: Tim Mihawk writes, Hey Jonathan, I am an infrequent YouTube user on iOS. As a result, it is not worth it for me to get YouTube Premium, which would allow me to play the audio only. Is there any other way to lock the iPhone and continue to listen to the YouTube video? Good to hear from you, Tim. Right now in iOS 13, the answer is a big fat no. But it looks like an iOS 14... All your wishes will come true because iOS 14 has a feature called Picture in Picture. And I don't think app developers can disable it, but maybe they can. Certainly in Safari, it's working quite well at the moment. And I believe in the Netflix app, it's also working at the moment. I can't tell you with YouTube because I do have YouTube premium. It's really a very worthwhile investment for me. And I like being able to lock the screen and all those good things. So look out for IRS 14. It may be what you need. Jason Stradone writes, Jonathan, I have found as I get older and my hearing seems to not be as good as it used to be, that being able to adjust the volume of the synthesizer speech helps. I have always preferred eloquence, but it seems a bit harder to understand for some reason now compared to Tom Vocalizer. I think part of that is the ability to adjust the volume independently but also the lower registry of the Tom voice makes it a bit more comfortable for me to listen to. I think it would be easier to understand eloquence for me if I have the ability to independently adjust the volume and lower the overall pitch to give it a bit more bass. Thanks, Jason. I'm not sure what screen reader you're using, but if you're using JAWS, you can absolutely do this. What you have to do is go into the JAWS options and choose voices. And then when you get to the combo box that asks what you're adjusting, the default is all contexts. When you have all contexts selected, pitch doesn't come up. But when you choose the context specifically, such as the PC cursor voice or the JAWS cursor voice, you will find the pitch control there. And you can also change the eloquence person, some of which are a bit more bassy than the default voice. So that may assist you. You can't, unfortunately, adjust the volume of eloquence from within JAWS. But, of course, using the Windows Mixer, you could adjust JAWS separately Although I think you would have to do that every time you launched Jaws, which would be a bit of a pain. Hooray! It's time again to be in touch with the Dutch. And this time it is Amber Jansen in the Netherlands. Hi, Amber. She says, Hi, Jonathan. I was wondering if you already tried out the Zoom EV6 yourself, the one that was sitting in a box in the corner of your room. Mate. That was a long time ago that I said that i I imagine if I'd had it in the box all this time. She says in episode thirty five Gary was reviewing this recorder, and i 'm wondering if Zoom made positive changes during the last few months in the f six iPhone app. Keep up the nice work. Thank you, Amber. I have been using the F6, and if you go back into the archives of this podcast, you will actually hear it on several podcasts. For example, the podcast that I did demonstrating the Samsung TV was recorded on the F6. The podcast demonstrating the Sony TV was also recorded on the F6. Both of those recordings using the Samsung Q2U microphone and the setup of the Sonus Arc, where we used two Sony condenser lavalier microphones, was also recorded on the F6. And if you want even more F6, you can go over to the Mahi podcast, which is the one I do in a professional capacity for the organization I lead that is spelled M-A-H-I. And you can hear the interview that we did with the Honorable Tracy Martin, who is a minister in the current government. And she invited me into her office in Parliament and I took the Zoom F6 and recorded with that. I really like the Zoom F6 It is a rockin' device, and I'm so pleased that I bought it. I think it's me. It's not them, it's me! But I get on much better with the F6 than I ever did with the H6. I just find it more intuitive. The placement of the controls, the layout of the buttons, it's just something I really like to use. I do sometimes miss the fact that the H6 has XLR combo jacks, and the F6 does not. It just has XLR, but it's not a showstopper. Since I got the app, they have not made any updates even to the F6 app, but it's still quite doable and usable for setting up most of the things. For example, I used the app to configure the F6 so that inputs one and two are designed for immediate insertion of my Samsung Q2U microphones, which are dynamic mics. I could also use the two Heil PR40s that are here in the studio in those inputs, three and four I have set up as a stereo pair so that if I want to record something from a stereo source, as I did when I was demonstrating the television, then I can just plug in there to inputs three and four and then inputs five and six have phantom power turned on so I can use my two lavalier condenser mics should I need to do that. But if I want to change to a different configuration for a particular recording project, it really is no problem for me to go into the app and make those changes. So the Zoom F6 gets a big thumbs up from here at towers <laughs> Hi, Jonathan Andre here, greeting you from Munich. And then he's got the German way of pronouncing it, but I'm not going to try and do that because Ich verstehe nur ein bisschen Deutsch und nicht Sehr gut. Anyway, first, he says, I love your great awesome show. I have some questions and comments related to your previous shows. I'll try to be concise. One, do you need an additional pop? Filter for the Mosin at Large's microphone of choice, Samson Q2U. The included package is quite generous, but there seems not to be a pop filter in it. That's interesting because when I bought mine, Andre, I bought a couple of them as a kit. And they both came with really good pop filters, a kind of big, thick things that you put on the microphone. So I suppose it depends. Yes, those mics are quite poppy, so I would definitely recommend having a pop filter of some kind. Two, Braille with a capital B displays. I use Focus 40 Blue 5th generation and love it. Before, I had a Focus 40 Blue 4th generation, but I experienced multiple problems with it. And finally... The motherboard got broken. Dear, that's not good at all. Three, TTS. I speak several languages, so I use multiple synthesizers. For English, my favorite is Eloquence, but I use Vocalizer Expressive Ava. Greetings to Robin Christopherson. (laughs) You're getting all excited now. On my Android phone. Four, Maori. I could go to Wikipedia, of course. But I'd like to hear an answer from a real and influential person like you. (laughs) Do you and all your children speak Māori? If not, have you ever needed to present or broadcast something for a Māori-speaking audience to have an interview with a Māori activist, maybe? What's the situation with the language today? See, I've never been asked about Māori on all the years I've been broadcasting or podcasting. So Māori is the language of the indigenous people of New Zealand, and it is one of New Zealand's three official languages. Official languages here are Māori, English and New Zealand Sign. And Māori was made an official language in 1987. There was really a danger of it dying out at one point. And then there was a real resurgence and a desire to keep the language alive. And now we do have some radio and TV outlets broadcasting in Māori. And what's really good about it is that Māori is kind of being interwoven into the fabric of New Zealand. You will notice that sometimes when I publish the show notes or send a message to the media list, I will start with a Māori greeting. And particularly since I started my present role, I've really been trying to make much more of an effort to do that. I'm proud of it because it is unique to New Zealand. Neither me nor my children speak the language fluently, but I think I speak well enough that if I was given a script, I could read it and sound quite fluent because the phonetic rules of Māori are fairly straightforward. But no, sadly, to my detriment, I don't speak it properly. And that is something I would like to do at some point. Five, this shows question, finally. For me, it's not even a question. I hate touch interfaces with passion. Though, as a modern and geeky person, I use them, of course. I know about Braille input. And already use it on my Android phone, but a purring desktop PC or a solid aluminium case laptop with a jolly old hardware keyboard are my choice. I don't know how much time and psychic force I would have used if I wrote this quite lengthy, sorry about that, email on a touchscreen of a smartphone. Thanks a lot. Greetings to Bonnie and stay safe. Thank you, Andre. I appreciate the email. And I have to say, if I had to choose between an Android phone and a PC, my choice would be very different. I would not want my Android phone to be the only thing. So for me, it's the fact that Apple accessibility and just the, the sheer range of apps and choices are so vast and pretty efficient that I would go with the smartphone.